This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Julian Burnside QC. Julian joined me in the studio to talk about the threats to multiculturalism in Australia. It's the topic of his seventh annual Walter Lippmann Memorial Oration for the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense. This is 3RRFM and my name is Amy Mullins. I'll be taking you through till noon today as usual. And as I said, I'm really pleased to have with me in the studio Julian Burnside QC, who is a barrister and he's also a human rights advocate and uh, is extremely well known for his the cases that he takes on around asylum seekers and refugees. And uh, he joins me now. Hi there, Julian. Good morning. Good morning. It's so wonderful to have you here in person. I'm really um, pleased that you could make it and thank you for taking the time. That's a pleasure. The traffic was awful. Was it? (laughs) It was awful for me too. Yeah, I wasn't sure what was going on today. It felt Mm. like Monday. Now, I know um, you are delivering this Walter Lippmann Memorial Oration uh, on the 13th of September from 6pm at the Melbourne Town Hall. And the topic of the the oration you'll be giving is called Threats to Multiculturalism in Australia. And it's for the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria, which is a wonderful organisation. And, uh, excuse me, Uh, Walter Lippmann was actually... uh, a president of that council at at a point in time and was very public about uh, issues of race and ethnicity and certainly the Racial Discrimination Act. And uh, I wanted to pick out a quote that I found um, from the Canberra Times on December the 6th, 1976. And he's talking about the Racial Discrimination Act and, um, and multiculturalism. And he says, A cohesive multicultural Australian society can only be achieved by understanding of and respect for each group within it and by the active and meaningful participation of all groups in the structures of our society. I thought that was a really great mm. summation of, of multiculturalism and, and how is. you succeed. And, and, of course, it was at the inflection point where assimilation was regarded as having failed. And, and so, you know, if you get people from different, different ethnic groups coming in who do not wish to assimilate and become Anglos, as it all was back then, um, then you risk those groups forming ghettos, which is not multiculturalism at all. No. And uh, Walter Lippmann was remarkably... He was just one of those people who was always busy, always busy, running around. He seemed to make friends with politicians on both sides of the fence and he was responsible for the creation of ethnic community councils. Um, And I think it's a great thing that the uh, uh, Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria... Uh, actually holds this oration for him each year. This is the eighth, I think? Seventh. Seventh, yeah. yeah. Excellent. And Walter was born uh, in 1919, so just at yeah. the end of World War One In Hamburg. In Germany, yeah. yes, which and was quite a um, progressive area of Germany at the time. Yeah, it was. And he, he was born into a um, comfortable um, sort of upper-middle Jewish household... But, of course, during the 1920s, even before the rise of Hitler, anti-Semitism uh, got going in 
Germany, I think largely as a result of the Treaty of Versailles, I mean, that's just my mm. opinion, the Treaty of Versailles was financially ruinous for Germany. And, yes. Um, well, they and did blame the Jewish people um, for being they, traitors, they, essentially. They, they did because Jews traditionally have been very good at handling money. And, um, and uh, Lippmann's family um, left after Kristallnacht and they got out to Australia, I think, in January of '39, um, and he became very active uh, in multicultural type activities in Australia. And, um, and I'm, I'm very glad to say that uh, a grandson of his, Matthew Albert, uh, is a member of the Victorian Bar. He's a person I've known for uh, a number of years and he his um, third given name is Lippmann. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and he, uh, Matthew tells me that he used to uh, spend time with Walter Lippmann quite often on his way to and from school. Um, so the influence is still there. The influence is still yeah. there. And, and I have to say, Matthew looks very much like the young Walter Lippmann. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fascinating. I was also very interested that um, his wife, Lorna Lippmann, was also an extremely influential advocate herself mm. for a range of issues and very but intelligent. Primarily for Aboriginal affairs. Yes. Um, and it's interesting that um, she was Lorna Mattinson, then Lorna Lippmann, and... Um, she did a great deal, a great deal for uh, Aborigines in Australia. Mm. It's sad in a way that she is not remembered in the same way that he is. Um, and it's also ironic that um, in, in a country which I think has made multiculturalism very successful... Aborigines don't seem to be part of that. No. Uh. <laughs> it's really discussed in the context of migration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I um, I actually d grew up not really understanding anything much about the plight of Aborigines in this country, um, but by good fortune in 2005, I think, I got briefed in a case in the South Australian Supreme Court for a bloke called Bruce Trevorrow, mm -hmm. who, uh, his parents were Aboriginal. Uh, he was born in November 1956 at One Mile Camp Meningi on the Coorong in South Australia. And One Mile Camp was a, a settlement of humpies and things um, a mile outside Meningi because even then, in November 1956, it was unlawful for Aborigines to live nearer than one mile to a place of white settlement unless they had a permit. So anyway, Bruce grew up at One Mile Camp Meningi and on Christmas Day 57, when he was 13 months old, he got very sick. And he was taken up to the children's hospital, which is about an hour's drive away. He was put in there and for the case, we managed to get hold of the hospital records, which showed that he was diagnosed as suffering from gastroenteritis and there was a wave mm -hmm. of gastro going through South Australia at the time. He was treated appropriately. A week later, he was better and a week after that, he was given away to a white family who lived in suburban Adelaide. And as it happens, that white family had a daughter who was 16 at the time uh, that Bruce was taken by them. And uh, she came along as a woman in advanced middle age and gave evidence during his case. Wow. And she said that her mother had always wanted a second daughter. And they saw an ad offering Aboriginal babies. They went to the hospital, uh, saw a 
cute curly-headed little girl at the end of the lineup, and they said, we'll take her. She's handed over to them. And when they got her home and changed her nappy, it turned out she was a boy. <laughs> That's how casual it was for an Aboriginal child to be given away in, in what was that, January 58 that he was That's given shocking, away. yeah. And it was only by doing Bruce's case that I learned that the connection between Aboriginal people and the land is closer than the relation between an Aboriginal person and their parents. Mm. Um, So here we are, we've got 2.6 or 2.7% of the population who are regarded by a lot of Australians as no-hopers and um, they, you know, our ancestors took the land from them caused them great harm then we took their children from them and caused them even more harm and we say oh well they're hopeless now why why don't we look around and think maybe we're part of the problem exactly i was really shocked and appalled when uh, tony abbott implied that the the decision to live in remote areas by indigenous australians which are obviously because they have that significant tie to the land um, with which they come from was that it was a lifestyle choice and the Western Australian government did not want to provide electricity and running water to these remote areas and I just couldn't even believe that that was something which they were suggesting that they should move back into main areas, main towns where they don't have that close connection. Yeah, look, I... Um, I, I it's it's very... I, I, don't know, I don't know the details of those circumstances and I don't remember... Abbott saying that. It's very oh, quite it's known, yeah. Amazing it's to still think brought he was our Prime now. Minister once. And <laughs> also, um, he, he really took on that Indigenous Affairs portfolio and still has now been appointed Special Envoy. Yeah. To, so and it yet continues. he seems dissatisfied with that. Mm. I'm not sure why. Uh, anyway, so... So, yes. But I, I think it's interesting. I... Uh, um, uh, it worries me in Melbourne, especially perhaps Melbourne more than other capitals. It's impossible to go to a public event without someone standing up and acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and their elders, yeah. past, present, and emerging, and so on. But while we acknowledge that we meet on land that was theirs, I wonder why we don't go forward and acknowledge that our ancestors took it from them and caused them mm. great damage. It's a Real pity. And frankly, I was interested um, working with Bruce in the course of his case. Bruce was... Well, he's taken from his parents basically when he's 13 months old. Um, he didn't see his mother again until he was 10. Um, the law had changed by then and, and he was able to meet her. The father had died by that time, so he never actually knew his natural father. Mm. Um, and... and um, when Bruce first met his mother and his two brothers and I think one of his sisters, he was sort of interested, the way 10-year-olds are, and it was arranged that he would go down and stay with them uh, the following, I think the following Easter. In any event, when the time came, a lady from Aboriginal Affairs came round to Bruce's house in suburban Adelaide, put him on the bus... And um, uh, once the bus had left, the foster mother, she wasn't exactly a foster mother but equivalent, um, said, he's too difficult, I won't have him back. And so the Aborigines Department posted his toys and his books and his clothes after him. 
That's the way he was reunited with his natural family. Not a single... I mean, he'd never even... He'd met them once in his, in his childhood. Um, anyway, that didn't work out very well and Bruce decided to try and get back to suburban Adelaide from Victor Harbour, where the family was living at that point. So he set out to walk back to Adelaide. It's a long walk. Mm. And he was picked up by the police on the way back and he was put into state care for the balance of his childhood. But it was interesting, um, working with Bruce, he... um, Every time he had got in any sort of trouble, he'd be sent off for a psych assessment. Every psych assessment from the age of nine showed that he seemed to have no idea of who he was or where he belonged. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting to see the generational influences of these things. He was not a good husband. He was a terrible father. And he couldn't really relate very successfully to anyone older than about 18 months, Mm. um, which is interesting. Well, it's said that the first 10 years are very formative in terms of brain development. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, Bruce Bruce became the first member of the stolen generation to be found by court to have been taken unlawfully and to have suffered damage and to be awarded compensation as a result. He's still Mm -hmm. the only one, interestingly. Now, Bruce's brothers, Tom and George Trevorrow didn't get gastro, weren't sent to hospital. The Aboriginal Aborigines Department records show that they reckoned his family were pretty good. Uh, and so they grew up at One Mile Camp, then Three Mile Camp, and they became leaders of the Naranjiri community. And that is interesting because we didn't get judgment in the case until August of t- 2007. Uh, and... Um, a bit later that year, Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister for the first time and said that the first order of business was going to be an apology to the stolen generations and he wanted some Aboriginal people in the public gallery of the House of Representatives. Tom and George Trevorrow, as leaders, were invited. Bruce wasn't. Really? <laughs> and we reminded, the, uh, the, um, we reminded the bureaucrats that Bruce was the only... Uh, person to have been found by a court to be a member of the Stolen Generation, so they quickly hurried out an invitation <laughs> and he got there. Yeah. But he died in the middle of June that year, t- 2008, just short of his 52nd birthday. A uh, bit younger than average mm. uh, male Aboriginal life expectancy. But I was really, really glad that Bruce... He sort of set a milestone and he became a bit of a local hero. He was living at Bansdale at the time and he became a bit of a local hero down there and I think it made a pretty unhappy life happy at last, which was yeah. good. But the the reason I mention that uh, is, is um, not only because I regard it as one of the most interesting and important cases that I've done, but because it shows the generational effects of... Um, what we did to Aborigines. Yeah. And and I thought recently, um, given that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and we don't plan to give it back to them, mm. what about a once-off 2.7% tax on the capital value of all the land we took? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people yeah. wouldn't like it, but it would no. raise hundreds of millions of dollars and all of that money would be put aside in a special account to be used specifically to support Aboriginal communities. And um, I kind of hope that Lorna Lipman would approve of the idea. 
Yes. Well, she was apparently a very um, charismatic person herself. And one of the quotes was she was described as a huge intellect cloaked in elegance and charm. Yes. Which yes. I really liked that description. Um I think it's really that you raise an excellent point about this area of multiculturalism and the fact that uh, Indigenous people really do need to be considered, more than considered, you know, they are the original people of this land Mm. and we did come and take their land from them. So, you know, to even assume that they're not part of the the cultural makeup, multicultural makeup sometimes is staggering. You also raise a really important point um, in a range of uh, lectures that you've mentioned about this whole issue of the Tampa crisis that happened, which I still remember. I was um, in high school at the time. I remember it very clearly. I remember September 11 very clearly. And those two events that happened during the Howard government, he was seeking re-election. There was huge question marks at the time over whether he would actually succeed because there were quite a few scandals happening at the time. And I just remember thinking as soon as September 11 happened, oh no, there goes the election. He's definitely going to be re-elected. And it seems like it was this pivotal moment in not just Australian politics, but also global politics. Well, across the West, at least. Yes. In terms of how we perceive uh, those who are part of the Muslim community and also how we perceive and identify terrorism and terrorists, because previous to that, there were a great number of uh, Caucasian terrorists, homegrown terrorists from Mm. their own nations, um, committing huge acts, certainly in America, even in, in Australia. Yep. Well, actually, terrorism in Australia has been pretty limited. There was the Sydney Hilton bombing in 1978. Mm, that was the last major attack. Uh, well, Apart from, well, would well, you count the Port Arthur massacre? Uh, that wasn't a terrorist attack. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Oh, mass murder is one thing. Terrorism is different. Because mm, um, it's about instilling fear and anxiety well, it's, and it's, it's, hatred. It's, it's orthodox criminal offences committed with a political motive. Mm. Um and the response to September 11 was interesting because, terrible though it was, it resulted in uh, a real spike in Islamophobia, which is shocking, and yet no consequences for our relations with Saudi Arabia, and yet all the September 11 bombers were Saudis. Very interesting. Isn't it? The, yeah. America's position on that has been deeply hypocritical. Um, the... the uh, I, I, I think... I think Islamophobia is is being stirred by sort of dog whistle politics amongst politicians. It's really quite serious. But I was, I was just thinking about um, terrorism in Australia. If you want to find, you know, the biggest terrorist act, can you think of what is the biggest terrorist act, undoubtedly terrorist act, mm. in Australian history? Probably the taking of land from Aborigines? Um, no, I don't no? think that would be regarded as a terrorist act, but the Eureka it's Stockade. Political. Oh! The Eureka Stockade That's in 1854. Yeah. That was a terrorist act. And and yet the, the, the people who led that were sort of local heroes. You know, Peter Lawler became a member of the mm. uh, Victorian government. Um, uh, and and well, interestingly, the, late, the latest theory about um, Ned Kelly is the, the things that he did, he did in order to establish a, a separate colony in north-east Victoria. And if that's right, then what he did was also terrorism. So we, 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 hold, you know, we, reckon, we reckon Ned Kelly's fantastic, but mm-hmm. he was arguably a terrorist. Mm-hmm. We, we 
acknowledged the Eureka Stockade every year, and yet that was a terrorist event. Um, and we seem to be really so frightened of terrorism that we're prepared to condemn a whole religion. It's mad. Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up in Melbourne, there was a very sharp rift between Protestants and Catholics. It was very, very marked. I don't know. It disappeared in sometime in the 60s, and I can't yeah. really remember well, how. Well, it was most marked in the cris- conscription referendums. It certainly brought out those huge mm. divisions between Protestants and Catholics. Mm. Well, I remember as a school kid, you know, the... Um, Catholics had their ditties about Protestants and Protestants had their ditties about Catholics. It was just Well, it was crazy. also very dangerous or at least frowned upon to marry, like cross-marry between oh, yes. Catholics and That's Protestants. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but but now those div- that division seems to have healed over and instead we've got Islamophobia um, and it really kicked into life after September 11. Um, but it's... It's rather uncomfortable to think that Islamophobia uh, here and across the West is just the modern equivalent of anti-Semitism, which was pretty prominent before the Second World War. Mm. Um, if if you need to give Adolf Hitler credit for anything, and that's a big question, he gave anti-Semitism a bad name. <laughs> well, it certainly did exist before... Oh, Adolf yeah. Hitler. Well, it existed it, it, even in the was, 19th century. It, it, oh, absolutely. Uh, and in in 1938, I can't remember which part of the year, but in 1938 there was a conference held at Evian in France uh, specifically to see what could be done to resolve the problems facing Jews who were trying to leave um, Germany. Um, and uh, the Australian representative was Thomas White, who in a lengthy speech observed that we do not have a racial problem in Australia and we do not intend to import one. <laughs> wow. Yeah. When the white Australia policy was very strong. Well, it was that, but, but also we were very strongly Anglo-oriented. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's, it's sobering to reflect on the fact that it was government policy in 1938 that we were not going to help resettle Jews fleeing Germany. And we all had a fairly good idea, I think, of how, how they were being treated in Germany. But yes. I think the Evian conference was before Kristallnacht, so maybe that shifted attitudes a little bit. Yeah, certainly and, was a pivotal moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we... I don't know what it is about human beings, but it seems that we always need to find someone to dislike. And that's why I'm so impressed that Victoria especially mm. is so well tuned to the idea of multiculturalism. Yes. Um, With luck, we'll get over our Islamophobia. Um, Hopefully. Well, if we look back into history, because you have raised an excellent point in terms of the history of Australia and race and multiculturalism, we saw um, migrants from Europe come across, certainly Italians, Greeks, and they were often singled out as being very different. Some people disliked them because of their difference. Then we saw um, the Vietnamese and certain other Asian uh, refugees come across um, after Vietnam and 
during that period and Malcolm Fraser was really important in welcoming them and we also saw you know Pauline Hanson talk about uh, this being a major issue and you know singling out Asians now she's moved on to mm. Muslims, Muslims yes. I mean you we have seen that kind of progression where there is this um, significant uh, pushback from some parts of the community against difference uh, cultural difference and and how people practice their religion or their their food and their you know gatherings do you think it's possible that it may be a similar thing is happening here and and it will have a similar life or is there something fundamentally different um it's i i think it's very similar actually um it may whether it can be overcome in quite the same way is another question i mean when in in the post-war reconstruction years when a lot of migrants came to Australia from non-Anglo backgrounds, as, as you say, specifically Italian and Greek migrants, uh, many of them refugees or displaced persons and so on, they were treated quite badly. Mm. Um, but it's, it's one thing to say, well, that group isn't like us, so we'll push them aside. It's something very different to say those people, those Muslims are dangerous, awful people. We don't want them here. That's very yes. different. Well, uh, it's politicisation I mean, by, yeah. you know, the government, essentially. Yeah. And, and of course, Howard exploited it ruthlessly in the November 2001 election. Um, the, as you observed, the Tampa judgment was handed down on the 11th of September 2001 in Melbourne and eight or nine hours later the attack on America happens and uh, everything looks different. Uh, he then, and I remember the atmosphere in Australia was very weird after that. Mm. You, you know, you couldn't say anything favourable to Muslims at all without people thinking you're a traitor or something. Uh, I had a friend who is a middle-aged Indian woman and who wore a headdress, which was characteristic of the group she came from. And so that looked a bit like hijab for the very first time. Although she's lived in Melbourne for decades, for the very first time she was being spat on in public transport because she's wearing a headdress. Mm. Um, terrible. Anyway, Howard went to the polls, uh, the election in November 2001, under the tag, we will decide who comes to the country and the circumstance in which they come, yeah. which um, was... If he was talking about migration, he was right. If he's talking about refugee policy, he's totally wrong. Totally wrong. Yes. And and the um, the example I like to give is that I'm entitled to say I'll decide who comes to my house and the circumstance in which they come. That's fair enough, a little bit unfriendly. And if I'm fed up with having people visiting, I can say I'm not having visitors till Thursday week, <laughs> which would be unfriendly but legitimate. But what if the next morning a little kid runs up to the door and says, help me, there's a man with a big knife chasing me. I could say come back on Thursday week, but I wouldn't. No. That would be outrageous. What you do is you bring her in, sit her down, check her story. If she's telling the truth, protect her. If she's lying, send her home. Mm. That's, and that's what refugee policy is. Migration policy, sure, we decide. Um, refugee policy, especially with people who simply turn up uh, as boat people, I think we should treat them decently and I don't care what the colour of their skin is or what religion they follow. Um, it doesn't make any difference. 
Mm. Let's get into that a bit. I'm speaking with Julian Burnside QC, who um, is delivering uh, the Walter Lippmann Oration, uh, which is happening on the 13th of September. We're talking about the threat to multiculturalism. And you have spoken about the, the three streams of refugee intake, the offshore resettlement program, which is, I guess, what politicians would consider the orderly way to do things, but it takes a very long time. Um I, I've always wondered, I mean, there's this other um, idea about aeroplane people and boat people and um, the fact that uh, this critical difference is that not only passports and travel documentation as to wh- which route you can take, but then also um, whether you can obtain a visa and that whether you can well, therefore come in via aeroplane or yeah, by exactly, boat. Exactly. You can't get on an aeroplane unless you've got an Australian passport or a valid visa. Uh, because, um, as anyone knows who's travelled outside Australia, when you're boarding the plane into Australia, the airline checks your papers very carefully because they're told by the government, if you bring anyone here who's not entitled to enter Australia, you take them back at your own cost. Mm. Um, So they're an extension of Australian border force. Yes. But one of the things that, you know, we've really thought about, and I think at one point was more conscious, was that you're talking about processing. You would sit someone down verify their story, seek to verify their story once you understand the situation with which they've come from and then, um, you know, deal with the process in an orderly but also efficient manner. And it seems as if it's almost, it's, well, it appears deliberate that, you know, this delay of processing people's applications has been going on for so long. I mean, mm. why does it take that long to process someone's application? Um, well, if you're talking about um, people who turn up as boat people, um, sometimes that can take a fairly long time if they don't have documents which demonstrate where they come from, who they are. On the other hand, if they are Rohingyan from Myanmar or if they're Hazaras from Afghanistan, then it's like saying, oh, hang on, you're a Jew from Germany in 1939. I wonder if you're a refugee. Let's find out what your <laughs> yeah. full name is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a no-brainer. It is, yeah. They, they are highly, they're almost certain to be valid refugees. And yet, you're right, We the department seems to sit on its hands for years on end. There are people at Yonga Hill in Western Australia in the detention centre, the 300-odd, who came here as boat people and who have been waiting for years for someone to assess their refugee claim. Mm. That's outrageous. No, exactly. And also certainly not um, a good use of taxpayer funds given how expensive it is to lock people up and keep them in offshore detention or onshore detention in Australia for so long. Well, offshore detention is more expensive. That's the most expensive Mm. possible way of dealing with people. Um, At Senate Estimates last September, uh, an official from the Immigration Department said that the offshore processing arrangement we have right now with 1,620 people odd mm. um, in Manus and Nauru, uh, offshore processing costs us one, just over $1 billion a year. That is $650,000 per person per year. Now, if, if I could go to Canberra and wave a wand and change the policy, I'd say, first of all, shut down offshore processing because it's outrageous. Yes. It's cruel and it's ridiculously expensive and it's terrible. Um, 
uh, I would say I will assume that the boats start arriving again and if the boats start arriving again, I would allow that they uh, can be put in detention initially but I'd limit that to one month of detention mm. and then pending their refugee status assessment, I'd say release them into the community um, um, on a visa which lets them work gives them full access to Medicare and Centrelink benefits and requires them to live in a specified regional town or city, not in the yep. capitals. Um, yes. And and I would even consider the implications when they refuge- when they qualify for a protection visa, and overwhelmingly they do, mm. um, like 90-plus percent uh, turn out eventually to be r- real refugees, just like they said... Um, I would contemplate when they get their protection visas, um, having a condition in the protection visa that they had to live for the next couple of years in regional Australia, not a specific regional town, but in regional Australia generally, so that the pressure on the capitals is not increased. And, you know, regional Australia is crying out yes. for more population. They and are. and even, even if you assume that every single one of them stayed on full Centrelink benefits for the whole time, that would cost vastly less than $654,000 per person per year, mm. which the offshore processing is costing. And most of that cost is in relation to people who have been accepted as refugees, but Nauru and Papua New Guinea are having trouble placing them anywhere and Australia said you'll never be allowed to come here. Yes. Well, it seems like common sense and I think that's why this show is called Uncommon Sense because of how uncommon it is. I want to um, close out this discussion, Julian, by mentioning and talking about politicians because often the way that we discuss multiculturalism now is a thing that we ticked off the list. We're the most successful multicultural nation in the world, apparently. We've done it. It's ticked and therefore there's an achievement. It doesn't feel like a project that is ongoing. I wonder, is it a project that should be perceived as ongoing and are there any politicians left that can take up the mantle and really, um, you know, be talking about multiculturalism given how negative it has become to even, you know, believe in this idea when it comes to Muslims, certainly? Um, I think it should be regarded as a project that continues and what I would like to see is Australia collectively acknowledging the benefits of our multicultural society at least one day each year so that we remember what it is, so that we acknowledge the importance of multiculturalism in this country. Mm. I think that would be a really good thing and then the politicians will pick up on that and they'll probably think, oh, yeah, well, we'll make sure we're on the right side of the division. Yes. Um, it would, I think that would be fantastic. And, and of course, that might then make it a little more likely that um, Aboriginal people and Muslim people will be incorporated in this sort of multicultural exercise, which is not assimilation but is, um, you know... Sort of separate but equal. Well, I don't even like separate but equal. That's no, a bad well, it's expression. really embracing but everyone yeah, as yeah, sort of each other as equals. A- acknowledging and appreciating your heritage mm. while sharing contemporary values in Australia. That's really what it's about. It's an excellent way to put it. Julian Burnside, it's been fantastic to speak with you and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.